Okay, first things first, Nick, you're not single anymore. You were for a day and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a whole 36 hours. I hope that 36 hours is in Thailand. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I'm not not gonna make any jokes about that. (laughs) I feel like we got Ghost of HR watching. Welcome to season two of Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's get into it and start making money. I love how Triple Whale is fixing data trust issues for direct consumer brands. Better data equals better business. Want to scale to the moon? Use promo code SUPPLY15 to get 15% off when you sign up for Triple Whale at triplewhale.com. We're on uh, season two, episode nine. Uh, so there's only three more episodes after this. I feel like uh, this season's really flying by. We're going to be done basically by the end of the year. But a bunch of stuff to talk about today. I'm super excited about Chase Podcast. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Black Friday stuff. You know, you and I had been texting in a uh, I'm not sure if it was in the group chat or if it's just you and I, Nick, where we were talking about like bankruptcies increasing and seeing a bunch more businesses just going sideways or out of business. So I'd love to talk about that, particularly about Wink. Wink is this direct-to-consumer wine business that went out of that, like, you know, declared bankruptcy in the past week or two. It's publicly traded. I, I mean, you and I have seen a bunch of other businesses. And, you know, people reach out to us and provide that information confidentially. And I want to respect that. Wink is publicly traded. You know, the bankruptcy was public. And I'd love to dive into their numbers. I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience at Affiliate World as well and what it was like, aside from the fact that you were single there. So maybe we can start with uh, Affiliate World. How does that sound? Since you're yeah, still jet-lagged great. the trip. Okay, tell me what happened. I'm extremely jet-lagged. I slept 10 hours last night, woke up at noon, and I thought it was 6 in the morning. So super jet-lagged. The trip was actually awesome. Not only is Bangkok like insanely nice of a city, although it's very humid, but uh, the people there are so kind and respectful. Everybody says thank you. Everybody says hello. Everybody says please. You know, if you need something, like they'll figure out how to make it happen for you. So that was awesome. Yeah, but the Affiliate awesome. World Conference was awesome too. The The content that they had around the speakers was super tactical. So it was all like, like it was not for a CMO to go to. It was like for a director of digital or a, a media buyer or somebody who's managing like a, a website to go to. It was very, very tactical and very much driven by by actions so that was awesome. The uh, a lot of the attendees, interestingly, came from India because India is only like three hours, four hours away. There was actually a lot of limited supply listeners there that wow, came up awesome. and, and said how much they love the podcast. It was interesting because normally when I go to events like this, it's uh, you know it's like media buyers, it's CMOs, it's head of marketing. In this case, a lot of the people were affiliate marketers. There was basically two types of people. You were either pushing offers or you were um, pushing traffic. It was kind of this marketplace of all these affiliates that are, you know, basically have email lists or they have like sites. And some of them have them very ethically. Some of them have, you know, home improvement newsletters. Others are like, you know, you spell weather.com wrong and like that's where I get my traffic is when you spell it wrong and go to the site and we have offers that are there. And um, I didn't even know this. You know, I thought like dating apps were like Tinder, Bumble, Hinge. They have all these dating sites that push affiliate offers to get you locked in. Uh, reminded me of like some of the stuff Ty Lopez used to do, where you know you get them into a monthly subscription and it's nearly impossible to get out. Um, there was also a lot of offers around like online casinos. That's a huge category that's grown over the last year wow. or so. Yeah, 
it was interesting because like every booth was people would just go up to a booth. So like I did a dinner with Gorgeous while I was out there because you know they they charge so much they can uh, put on a nice dinner for us. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so that's right. so we we did a dinner with Gorgeous and as I was like standing near the Gorgeous booth, everybody that came up just looks at Gorgeous and goes, "What kind of traffic do you push?" And they're like, we don't push traffic. And they're like, okay, what kind of offers do you have? And they're like, we don't have an offer either. And then they're like, okay, thank you. And they just walk away. And that was probably 90% of the people that came up to the gorgeous booth. Yeah, overall, I mean, the conference was awesome. There's another one in Dubai coming up. And I plan to go just because the, um, the people there were awesome. Everybody's doing really interesting things. It's not necessarily like direct to consumer and Facebook ads and landing page stuff. Although they do kind of leverage those individual pieces in different ways. You know, they're buying Facebook traffic and it's going somewhere else, or they're they're building landing pages to increase conversion on their affiliate offers. But uh, the content that was there and like the learnings from each individual person I met were really interesting. The affiliate world world or is really amazing. Uh, like those guys care about every single click more than anybody else. Because they're paid on like conversions in a really different way. They're not building brands. They're like, how do we get uh, someone down this conversion funnel? When I was getting in, uh, started in e-commerce, I met this guy at a coffee shop in New York City who was an affiliate marketer. And he's like, these are the smartest and sleaziest guys in the entire world. This was back in like 2012. He was running ads to get people to sign up for like University of Phoenix or at least get information from University of Phoenix. And so University of Phoenix was paying him like $40 per lead back in 2012. And, um, you know, I was like, wow, that seems like a really interesting business. Like, you know, why don't you start a brand? I bet you could do so much better. And he's like, look, I'm spending $10,000 every day on Facebook ads in 2012, drive, getting leads to University of Phoenix. Like, this is a big business. And I was just stunned. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that affiliate offers could be so much and, you know, could be uh, from such reputable institutions like University of Phoenix. And, you know, you could scale them so quickly. Like, it, it wasn't like, you know, he had some Instagram page and he was, uh, get, you know, getting some uh, one or two different leads per day for University of Phoenix. He's running $10,000 a day on paid ads behind it, probably making five to $10,000 a day personally off of it. Uh, so I thought it was really incredible that, that kind of business existed. What did you speak on? Like, what was it like, you know, you were a speaker there, right? Yeah, I spoke on uh, landing pages and site conversion opportunities. And so I basically talked all about like, you know, the elements of a kind of the same thing we talked about here a few episodes ago, but all the kind of necessities that a landing page should have, a lot of the things that e-commerce sites specifically could add. There was, there was probably like 15% of the attendees were e-commerce, which I, I thought it would be more, but, you know, 75% was landing page focused that could be applied to affiliate stuff. And 25% was more site focused. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Sounds like a great time. Well, do you yeah, know when the one in awesome. Dubai is? I'm going to try and go as well. March 1st and March 2nd next year. Okay. Not too far away. Yeah. We should go together. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Uh, have you flown on Emirates first class, by the way? Okay. I have some great plane stories. I flew Emirates business and spent the entire time on the way there, pretty much in the lounge in the back. There's like the bar with the TV yeah, and yeah, yeah. couches. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I was back there the whole time and... Uh, Met some interesting people there. And then on the way back, I pretty much slept half the way and the other half just kind of like working on and off. Gotcha. Okay, let's switch gears uh, to bankruptcies. Uh, or not just bankruptcies, but businesses struggling. Now is a time where we're going to see a lot more of those businesses struggling. 
you know, if you fundraised 12 months ago or 16 months ago or 18 months ago, the market has gotten a lot tougher, particularly based on valuations. Facebook ads, in my opinion, have been doing much better, but like, you know, they may not save your business if it's upside down already. And I think the holiday season is pushing a lot of people towards this because they're like, well, we had one last knockout punch either to sell as much inventory as we can to get liquidity for uh, the inventory that we had to try and continue operating this business and it didn't work out. Or they're just like, this business isn't going to work out. I want to start 2023 fresh without this business around my neck. And so people are like, hey, I want to find a home for this business. Uh, you and I had texted about a bunch recently. The one I really wanted to dive into was Wink. Are you familiar with Wink, W-I-N-C? I'd actually talked to them a few times through MentorPass about really their like customer acquisition stuff. And you know, one thing I remember when I worked at Hintwater and even like talking to a lot of the earlier direct-to-consumer people was, you know, if you were gonna start a subscription business, you had to fundraise like crazy. Like that was the the first KPIs, have a lot of money in the bank so that you can then go acquire customers even at an unrealistic price and hopefully your LTV to CAC ratio uh, or payback works. That was like the, the LTV payback was like the phrase of 2017 in direct-to-consumer. So that that was one kind of mistake that I think, uh, maybe not mistake, but it's like, it was a bubble that was going to burst at some point. And there was a few, like, a, a, you know, a couple of the early direct-to-consumer companies, one in particular that you probably know also, uh, even publicly says, like, or, or the founder does, he was like, yeah, we have, we know we have like a, a mediocre product and we raised too much capital. And so at this point, we can basically run the business at somewhat of a break even in terms of where our valuation is to where our revenue is, but we can't really get more aggressive because then we'll lose money on the business and we can't really sell the business because we can't hit the valuation that we raised at last. So we're kind of like a zombie business and you know that's like what, what they're at. You know, a lot of these companies that built that built a business in Excel, and I still we talk about this all the time. Like, you can't build a a business that interacts with human emotion and human psychology in Excel because Excel doesn't account for a lot of that. You know, it's like when the CFO. I remember meeting with the CFO of Hint at the end of like 2017, and he was like, "Oh, you had let's say uh, uh, 1.2 million sessions this year on on the site. Cool. We're going to project for 1.7, and we're going to cut your budget by 20 percent." And it makes sense in Excel. So, you know, make it happen. It doesn't make any sense. So I think that was one issue was like just a misalignment of uh, what's possible. The second one that I think we're seeing happen a lot more right now with some of the other businesses we were texting about is these companies raised at ridiculous valuations and they raised at a very frothy time in the market. Then it becomes, or at least at the time, it was like an ego thing. You know, how high can I get my valuation compared to the other company in this category that's also raising money or that's also existing. And it was almost this like achievement of, oh, I, I could get a, a 10 million valuation or a 20 or a 30. And people would go raise at these ridiculous valuations. And at the time, it's cool. You know, you get your TechCrunch article and people get excited for three minutes out of their own day. But then, you know, down the road, it comes to this point where, you know, you're in debt or you're unable to hit your revenue targets, or your churn is a lot higher than you think. And not only can you not you know, sell at something kind of reasonable to what you raised at, but it is completely upside down, where you've raised millions and millions of dollars, you're in debt for a few million dollars, there's no way you're going to be able to sell the business at any, any sort of a reasonable cost. 
and you're just kind of sitting there with this asset that's been built on an Excel sheet that doesn't make any sense in the real world. I'd love to get into the numbers of Wink because I was taking a look at them over the last few days. Uh, Let's so this, do it. Wink, uh, Wink was actually started as a business called Club W, which was like a wine subscription business. They went through YC in like 2010 or 2011, back when YC sort of still did e-commerce businesses. I feel like YC today is like, okay, e-commerce is not tech. And the multiples and valuation and outcomes don't justify going through YC. And so generally, they don't do e-commerce much anymore. For full disclosure, I applied to YC with Native, and I didn't get in either. And so in any case, Club W did. They went through YC. This was back in 2010, 2011. The business is more than a decade old. Uh, They're a wine subscription business. At some point, they pivot from solely being a wine subscription business called Club W. They renamed themselves Wink with a C uh, and start selling wine on, on the internet. So they went public about a year ago. In November 2021, they actually went public. But before that, they had raised $54 million. So you were talking about fundraising a ton in order to make sure that your LTV to payback period makes sense, or you need a ton of cash to fund that. These guys had a ton of cash, $54 million, not a ton of money, but not nothing over the course of a decade, certainly. I was going through the history of the business, and I thought this was some really interesting stuff. They uh, got $1.4 million through the PPP loan, which was forgiven, which is really interesting. Um, you know, from uh, when they yeah. got their PPP money, they're like, this is our Series B. We have now <laughs> raised a Series B. It's PPP money. Uh, there was another company that I had invested in, uh, Nick, that decided not to take PPP money. Basically, in 2020, 2021, the company was like, we are doing so well, we're not going to raise PPP money. Like It seems unfair that the government is going to give you this money and then forgive it. You know, I advised them against that. I was like, look, the government is giving everybody this money and everybody is taking this money. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene took this money. You know, Every business in the she world is taking this money. And you, know, you can take it and get it as a loan. And if you decide that you think that your business is great and you don't think this is right for you to do, you can repay it back if you want. You don't need to have it forgiven. They decided not to. We had a call recently and they were like, yeah, that was a big mistake. We should have taken the PPP money because now we need to raise a bunch of money in order to get the business to the other side of like 2022 or 2023. It was really interesting. Like during that period, a lot of people raised a ton of money from PPP and that became their uh, like Series B or fundraising. And, you know, Wink raised a million four. They'd also borrowed $5 million. I thought this was really interesting. In December 2017, they borrowed $5 million at a really high interest rate, 6.25% plus prime. Uh, but wow. the minimum interest rate that they had to pay was 11.5%. So they borrowed $5 million and were paying basically $550,000 or so every uh, year in interest on the $5 million that they borrowed. Wow. They go public in November 2021, a year ago, and they raise $18 million. Uh, with this $18 million, they pay back the loan that they have, the $5 million loan. And they also buy a business around this time. Uh, they buy a business a little bit before they go public. In May of 2021, they buy a wine importing business. And they buy it for $13 million. $8 million cash up front, some stock and equity, I believe, and then an earnout. And this is really interesting. I'd love to see what the, how they used cash before they got into the situation of a bankruptcy. Because... If you're buying a business for $8 million in cash, you must be pretty bullish on your business. And in May 2021, they bought a business and spent $8 million in cash buying it. It was a wine importer business. Uh, the business ended up like, you know, it was $8 million. I'm sorry, they bought it for $13 million, $8 million in cash up front, 
the earnout ended up being $1.6 million. And at some point over the last year, they realized that they did not have $1.6 million to pay out the earnout. And so they structured it and they said, okay, we're going to pay you back over the course of nine months. We're going to pay you nine payments so we can pay you that $1.6 million starting in September of 2022. Uh, so the you know, seller started getting close to $200,000 a month or so, I would imagine, and now will not get anything else because the business is bankrupt. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. Like, you know, just in May 2021, they spent $8 million cash, bought a business for a total of $13 million. They had an earnout and they will not be able to pay the earnout, which is pretty crazy. That is insane. It just blows my mind because they were so bullish about the business a year and a half ago and a year and a half later, they're bankrupt. I wonder like what would have happened to Wink if they stayed private and decided not to go public? Because you know, from everything it sounds like, like uh, Wall Street loves things that are going to be relevant 10 years from now versus uh, things that are so dependent on the cost of CPMs or your retention analytics. You know, they want software that's like building AI today so that in 12 years from now, they're creating biological, not hacks, but like, you know, uh, breakthroughs in technology, for example. I think a lot of retail investors, they, they like betting day to day because it's like, you know, it's quick cash or it's Robin Hood type stuff. You buy in today and, you know, two months later you cash out. But it seems like majority of the market looks for, looks to invest in companies or support companies that they believe in 15 years are still going to be relevant and around versus like, you know, a hot wine startup, which is essentially just a BevMo with Octane AI quiz on top of it and a, <laughs> and, and a fulfillment center versus like uh, NVIDIA or Dell Computing or, you know, something like that. I mean, it's definitely a very different business. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the stock market, I, I think everyone prefers software businesses because they're more predictable and less likely to like fall off of a cliff when it comes to their valuation. Wing stock is down 94% over the past year. It has a $5 million market cap now, which is bananas. Uh, but there's still some interesting things about the business that like I started digging. So first I want to dig into the history and be like, where did you use cash? And was that a good use of cash? And so we talked about the acquisition. We talked about how they borrowed $5 million at a really high interest rate. Uh, they've also raised about $5 million through, through a revolver. You know, they're bankrupt. So that the guys who own that revolver basically be in the first lean position to take over the business. But let's talk a little bit about the business itself. So they do about $50 million in revenue a year. Uh, which is actually a lot. Like, I mean, it's a $50 million a year revenue business trading at $5 million. So, you know, one-tenth of their annual revenue. 65% of their business is direct-to-consumer. On their direct-to-consumer business, they have a $90 AOV. 35% of their business is retail. So we're talking about brick-and-mortar stores. You know, Nick, you asked a really good question, which is what would happen to Wink if it didn't go public? And I think there are a few things to think about here. First is when you're not public, yeah, it's way easier to fundraise. It can be easier to fundraise, I should say, because there's not a market valuation of your business every single day. And like now, if Wing tries to fundraise, people are going to be like, nobody in, the, in all of New York City thinks that this business is backable. Why would I put my cash in? When you're doing a private fundraise, that there's an information asymmetry, and you know you've gotten 50 no's, but the guy that you're talking to, the investor that you're talking to, he doesn't know that you've gotten 50 no's, so he might still give you a yes. So I think that th there is that information asymmetry. And the other thing is, like, there's a lot of cost to being a publicly traded business. Like, you need DNO insurance. DNO insurance is directors and officers insurance, which basically means if someone sues the business, 
the directors and officers aren't going to be held personally liable. There's an insurance policy to protect them personally. And so almost every single publicly traded business will have DNO insurance. Very rarely will a privately traded business have DNO insurance. And you know, that DNO insurance can cost millions of dollars a year. The others are like accounting costs. Like, you know, if you've got a $50 million a year business, when Native was a $50 million a year business, I was using Excel to do our accounting. Like it wasn't, you know, uh, audited by third, it wasn't audited by Deloitte. Uh, and when you're a publicly traded company, you have Sarbanes-Oxley requirements, like this law that the United States passed, passed after Enron went bankrupt, that basically uh, required you to step up your accounting game. And those the costs associated with stepping up your accounting game can range between $1 and $10 million a year. So these guys are burning a lot of cash just being a publicly traded business, which is pretty crazy. But anyway, more than $50 million in revenue year to date, 40% gross margins, the other really interesting thing I saw was less than 15% of revenue is spent on marketing, or maybe about 15% of revenue is spent on marketing. That's usually way less than I counsel businesses to spend on marketing. I'm usually like anywhere between 25 and 40. 40 if you're a one-time purchase, but it's really high AOV and you're going to earn a lot of money. 25 if you're a mature business and you're like, you know, getting a lot of returning customers and you're, you know, you've sort of maxed out your digital channels. These guys are only spending 15% of revenue on marketing, which blew my mind. They mentioned a couple other things. One is they mentioned that gift cards as part of their, I think we've had this conversation before, but they said two things. One, they're, they're, they have a subscription, uh, they have a subscription right now. When you, when you order from a, a Wink, you get a subscription. And rather than shipping you a box every month or every quarter, they give you credits. And you can save up those credits and then make a purchase, or you can spend those credits every single quarter. And the interesting thing is they don't send out any emails as a result of this, or they send out far fewer emails than a traditional business would, because there's nothing shipping unless you go in and select what you're going to purchase. And the other thing is they use uh, gift cards a lot. And they're like, buy some gift cards and gift gift cards to a friend. And they're like, we see a lot of breakage here. They don't list the amount of breakage they see, but basically breakage is the amount of gift cards that never get redeemed. So Nick, if I buy you a $10 Starbucks gift card and you spend $9.50 and you're like, well, I don't care about this 50 cents. Let me throw the 50 cents in the garbage. You know, Starbucks gets that 50 cents as profit. These guys have some breakage as well, but they don't list how much they have as breakage. Yeah. In fact, their gift card page at the top of their site uh, gift cards is the second thing you can click. And uh, their gift card page is actually a beautiful landing page for gift cards. It really sells you on buying like a $100 gift card. Yeah. I mean, it's genius because they're like, we're going to, you know, this is cash flow for us up front. We get cash right out of the gate, which we need. We get guaranteed some percentage of future revenue and we get guaranteed higher margins because you're definitely not going to spend all $100 that you got here. Yeah, exactly. I love how Triple Whale is fixing data trust issues for direct-to-consumer brands. Better data means better business, and it means you can start scaling your brand at a profit. Triple Whale has solved the attribution gap with their Triple Pixel, and I'm signed up for the deeper customer insights and profit tracking metrics I can access on their app. I'm not sure if you use it, Nick, but I'm signed up for Triple Whale, and I have a bunch of brands hooked up to my phone on Triple Whale's account, and it's fantastic. Like Once you start logging in and looking at the app, I look at it like 15 times a day because I'm like, oh, I can look at all the metrics on my phone and it takes two seconds. So I'm waiting for the train. And I'm like, how are all these brands doing today? Uh, so I, I look at it so often. It's really awesome. If you're ready to use Triple Whale, use promo code SUPPLY15 to get 15% off when you sign up. Uh, it's triplewhale.com. Did you see anyone else on Black Friday do a really good job with gift cards? I feel like no one did this well. I feel like I didn't see anyone do this well, which is buy a $100 gift card today, 
get $100 spend in January or something, basically helps you with cash flow. There's going to be some breakage and gives you some revenue in January. Did you see anybody do that? I didn't see many people do it. I do remember a few years ago doing that and it worked really, really well. I know that Sarah from Curie, she tweeted that she ran a gift card promo 20% off. And so basically she said it helped them acquire more new customers than a percentage off sale. It was 70% returning customers for Curie Day versus 28% for Black Friday. Their AOV was 18% higher with the gift card promo. And basically what they did is they said, if you order $30 or more, you get a $5 gift card. If you order $50 or more, you get a $10 gift card. If you order $80 or more, you get a $20 gift card. So it wasn't necessarily like buy 100 and get 120 in January, but buy a bunch now and then get a gift card as a result versus a percentage off which is actually genius because you kind of keep the margins within your walls versus um, yeah, letting it go. You get a higher AOV and like, you know, a $5 gift card isn't going to buy you anything. So you're going to have to come back and spend more money. Right. I'm even a huge fan of being like, you know, spend a hundred dollars today and get $40 in January or February for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, if you have a slow January or February, this is a good way to like push out some, uh, this is a good way to guarantee some sales in that month. And two, you know, the cash flow is really great because you get that cash flow right up front. And three, you just get like it increases your repeat purchase rate. Like people who people who are trying to sell their business should focus on that repeat purchase rate. And they should be like, great. If I sell a hundred dollar gift card today, uh, you know, that person uses in February, you know, I get two sales. I get a sale now and a sale in February, and that's going to improve my repeat purchase rate. And so I'm sort of playing magic with my numbers right there. Yeah. I remember when we, we used to run those, we also found that you know, the initial hypothesis was, okay, if people were to get a gift card, would they be confined to the to the amount of the gift card? But in fact, it was that they looked at it as a discount that they got. So it was like, so let's say somebody in this case, Curie gets a $20 gift card. When I go place my $60 order in January or February, I look at that as actually, it's just a $40 order because I got 20 bucks from Curie. So it's almost looked at as a discount versus, oh, I earned this or I paid for it. And now I'm using the money that I spent before. Yeah. And so psychologically, it's kind of genius too. I, I'm not sure if we talked about this before, but have you heard of a brand called Naked Wines? Yeah. They do a ton of this where they're like, let us put a gift card in your box. Or they'll be like, they'll do $100 vouchers everywhere. Like you, And you, when you open wow. up, when you see the voucher, you're like, wow, $100 of free wine. That's pretty awesome. And you go to their website and you're like, ah, I got to spend $200 to get this $100 voucher, which really means, you know, this wine must be really terrible because you're sending me three cases of wine for $100 and six for $200. And they do, they do I think that's their, like, like five years ago, that was their entire, their entire business was $100 vouchers. And we pay other brands to put vouchers in their packages. So they'll pay HelloFresh or Playdead or Native or Hint Water to put a $100 gift card in the boxes that you already send out. That's the customer acquisition strategy. And they'll pay you a $50 CPM because they're like, one of these thousand people is going to use this gift card and spend $200 and we're going to make a fortune off of this. Totally. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about the voucher stuff. Even like airlines do this a lot with their credit card, like businesses actually. A lot of airlines have larger businesses with their credit cards than they do in the airline itself, simply because of the kind of a similar thing as to where where Starbucks also has, I think, like $2 billion of just assets sitting in their gift cards at all times uh, that they can invest. And so I think, you know, if you're an e-commerce business and you don't have gift cards set up, it's a, such an easy opportunity 
to just collect cash up front and also guarantee some sort of secondary or third order coming later in the in next year. Yeah, yeah, I think gift cards are way underutilized. The hard part is, and I'm not sure if you've de- dealt with this at all, Nick, with your brands, because like, um, you know, you're doing most of the media behind it, but like, uh, gift cards are really a pain in the butt from an accounting procedure. Like, you can't declare the revenue right when you sell the gift card. You have to declare the revenue when the gift card is actually used. So, let's say you sell a hundred dollar gift card today, and the person makes makes a purchase in March. The hundred dollar revenue actually comes in March, not today, even though they got the cash today. You can't, let's say on average, 10% of your gift cards are never redeemed. You can't declare $10 today as revenue or as profit, really. Uh, but you can't declare the other $90. You've got to wait until it's actually used, which is kind of pain in the butt. It's, yeah. it's tougher from an accounting perspective, but if, and Wink is public. So they've got to do this really well. If you're a privately traded company, you know, you can just be like, fuck it. Doesn't matter. Like, you know, I, I understand what my business is like. Right. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about them is they spend 50% of their revenue on headcount and general and administrative expenses. Now, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that they've got a lot of DNO insurance and probably a lot of accounting costs, but that's still a ton of revenue to spend on, you know, personnel and general and administrative. So they're spending more than $25 million a year on that, which is pretty crazy. Does it say how many employees? I'm sure it does. I don't have it written down. Um, okay. it, I'm sure it does though. But the, look, you know, I was considering bidding on them in the bankruptcy auction, but the heart, because, you know, it's a $50 million a year, north of $50 million a year business. And they have this great brand called Summer Water. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. It's like yeah. a beautiful rose bottle. Pointer actually just did the site for that. It's an amazing brand. Oh, is that brand. right? Yeah. 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 I think it's a fantastic brand. And I think that's probably like the crown jewel asset that they have. I think the problem with alcohol, and, you know, I had an alcohol business and I swore that I would never get into alcohol again. And even then, I was thinking about bidding on this company. Was that like, you know, there's so many costs associated with just making sure you can ship your product. Like you have to pay for so many state licenses. You have to have so much regulatory bullshit compliance. And then when you ship out a package, it's not like I just ship out a package and it's two pounds and it gets to you. Actually, I have to pay for adult signature required, which means you have to have somebody at your house to sign for the package. And that's easy in New York City because your doorman's going to sign for it. In fact, I think it's a great way for 18-year-olds who live by themselves to buy alcohol without being 21 years old. Just order <laughs> alcohol and your doorman will sign for it. But if you live in Florida or Texas or somewhere else, you know you actually have to be home. Your door, you don't have a doorman necessarily. And so if you don't sign for it, they actually ship the package back to the seller. Like FedEx will say, I tried to deliver this. We couldn't. So we have to ship it back to Wink. And Wink, you have to pay for the transport both ways now. And so then the customer is like, hey, I didn't get my package. And you're like, what the fuck? I shipped it to you. You didn't sign for it. And so it becomes a real pain in the ass. Um, and that's also one of the reasons that the costs are much higher. And so I, like, I was looking at the auction. And I was like, fuck it. I'm not going to get involved in this. Already thinking about that is giving me is raising my blood pressure. Yeah, I also learned through um, the auction process for house that if you buy it with the licenses, it actually takes about a year before the licenses get transferred in your name officially. And so you can't sell for a year. You have to basically just sit and burn cash for a year before you can, you're actually legally able to ship the product under your new entity. That's horrific. Uh, alcohol is, is like um, a great, uh, is a business that definitely needs disruption. And I don't know how it gets disrupted until there's better laws on the books to actually make changes. It, and it seems like it seems like that's not happening anytime soon. Yeah, I was hoping with um, you know cannabis laws getting passed uh, quickly. I feel like last year, the year before, that there was going to be 
kind of a, a change that goes toward both alcohol and cannabis or kind of all vice industries. But it feels like that hasn't happened at all. It almost feels like too, we need separate laws around e-commerce businesses or digital first businesses versus those that are uh, traditional, you know, B2B or brick and mortar. Um, okay, let's switch gears from Wink. Uh, two other things I wanted to talk about. One is, um, and I should have mentioned this earlier, which is ratio of Cyber Monday to Black Friday. I'm always curious what people see of like, you know, usually Black Friday is the biggest sales day you've got. And I saw some people actually have a Saturday that was bigger than a Friday, which is pretty crazy. Like, what do you see when it comes to Cyber Monday versus Black Friday? How big should Cyber Monday be compared to Black Friday if you're doing this well? Yeah, so I'm just pulling up some numbers right now. I think normally we find that Black Friday is huge, but we also find that Cyber Monday tends to be slightly bigger. Really? Yeah, and I think it's because usually Black Friday, we tend to push like a, a an offer around a big bundle or a couple bundle options. Whereas with Cyber Monday, we tend to do these site-wide sales. And I think the site-wide sales tend to capture a larger percentage. Obviously, Black Friday, you have a much higher AOV and probably better margins because it's a bundle that you're building yourself. But from a gross revenue standpoint, I think that uh, Cyber Monday tends to do well. So, all right, so I'm looking now. So there's one brand here. They did about well, also the other thing with Cyber Monday is you have the whole week, right? So you don't just, you're not confined to one day. So actually with, okay, so with brand number one, it was about the same. And then with brand number two, they did, yeah, about double on Cyber Monday. And they did the bundle on Friday and the site-wide on Monday. And so the site-wide tended to outperform even just alone on Monday, not even counting the rest of that week. Just alone on Monday. Wow. That's crazy. I didn't realize that you were seeing brands grow, have bigger sales days on Cyber Monday than Black Friday. Yeah. Uh, everyone I talked to was just, uh, what's it called? Uh, seeing bigger Black Fridays than Cyber Monday. Like I saw Cyber, I saw most brands have like 80% of Black Friday on Cyber Monday, not 120%. Yeah. And then on Black Friday, brand number two had a conversion rate of 4.9%. On Cyber Monday, they had a conversion rate of 5.5%. I also felt this year, I don't know if you went and walked around stores. I felt like stores were pretty empty on Friday. And I think it's also that people were probably, I mean, this is definitely what happened. People just spend time with family probably on Friday versus Monday. It's like, you know, you're back in the office. And like we talked about on the last episode, that 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. email is the one that really hits. And so I think that checks out. Okay, gotcha. Wow. I didn't realize that you were seeing such success on Cyber Monday. That's awesome. And like, let me ask you one random question, which is what do, how do brands handle customers who get both emails? So like, let's say I made a purchase on Black Friday. You know, ideally you exclude me from the Cyber Monday per- sale, I think, because you're like, okay, Cyber Monday, Black Friday was the kit. You made a purchase. Cyber Monday is the percentage off. And let's say it's 30% off. And you're like, well, I didn't want this whole kit. I just wanted these two things. And if I could save the 30%, I would. How do people handle that kind of stuff from a customer service perspective? How have you seen that happen? If you're well, one ideally you don't have an offer that that makes customers question if they bought the right offer because you know that that'll just increase your customer service load. But yeah, ideally if you have a same offer or similar offer, you're in, you know it could make somebody question. Then yeah, you should exclude them. Although there's this podcast called Limited Supply where they tell you to keep sending emails, so you <laughs> <laughs> you might just shoot yourself in the foot. But no, I think if it is somewhat competitive, you should definitely exclude those customers. You don't want to piss them off. But 
if it's not, I think go for it. Like we found that a lot of people who who buy on Black Friday will come back again, especially if it's like, um, you know, if you change the messaging. That was another thing I realized was the brands that that focused on like content in the sense of not only pushing new creative, but also pushing new messaging. Like Black Friday is the deal for you and Cyber Week is the deal where you can stock up on gifts or you get your stocking stuffers or, you know, buy your gifts for Christmas now versus later. It tended to do really well, even with repeat customers. That's really interesting. So, so um, yeah, I guess it depends on the, uh, like the SKU count that you've got. If you've got a bunch of SKUs, uh, it's pretty easy to do that because you can do Black Friday. These are on discounts. On Cyber Monday, this is what's discounted or it's very different. If you've got fewer SKUs like native, I think it's really tough to do that. And uh, you know, I'll tell you from the experience that I had um, a few years ago when I was still running native, it was really difficult because you would exclude everyone. You'd say, okay, Black Friday, everyone purchased, exclude them from the offer on Cyber Monday, but then Cyber Monday would roll around and you send out a new offer and everyone, like, you know, people have given you two email addresses or five email addresses, some people. And so they're like, hey, I got the offer. Why didn't I get this offer on Friday? And you're like, fuck, well, you know, we try and have two different discounts to keep things fresh and interesting, but we didn't expect people to, like, we knew this would happen. And you're just like, look, we'll try and make things right on a case by case basis. But it's really hard for us to do because we're like, we try and exclude them, but everyone's given two, not everyone, but a lot of people have given two email addresses. One when they sign up for your Clavio offer and one when they're checking out. And so like, they got two email addresses and they see both offers and that's a real pain in the butt. Totally. Um, okay. I've only got one more thing I want to discuss on this uh, uh, this episode. Um, it was a story that I had from Native Sale, uh, and I was telling my parents this, and they were like, "Oh, this is such a good." Like they were so upset at me. Actually, uh, we were selling our business a long time, you know, a few years ago, and our lead investor was this guy named Paul Ferris from Azure Capital, and he's a great human being and was super helpful. I cannot say enough good things about Paul. Like he was yep. never a dick as an investor. He put like he put his money where his mouth was. He was honest about what he did. When I had problems, I gave him a call. He was like, okay, great. Let's figure out how to solve this together. He was never like, Moise, this is your fault, which I really appreciated. Uh, we were selling the business. And uh, so once there was, um, we were driving from Palo Alto up to San Francisco, probably in like May of 2021 or something or March. And he's like, Moise, don't sell this business for less than $100 million. You can get to $100 million. So co- it comes to like October and we're, I, I'm like, hey, let's get lunch. And I get lunch with him, my brother, and my father because they're in town because we're about to sign the docs. And I'm like, hey, Paul, uh, I'm selling the business. I ran a process and he used to be a banker. He used to be an investment banker. So he's very familiar with the process. And I was like, you know, we got an offer for $100 million, the amount you told me to get six months ago. And he's like, this is awesome. And he's like, you know, how far are you in the process? I'm like, we're very far in the process. We've got documents, uh, you know, back and forth. We've negotiated documents. We're waiting on a couple of things to wrap up and we're going to sign. And like, you know, it's probably a Wednesday and we're going to close on Monday or Tuesday or something like that. And he's like, okay, you know what you should do is you should call up P&G and tell them that you want $125 million. And $100 million isn't going to do it anymore. And I was like, are you crazy? And he's like, look, this is one of the best e-commerce businesses I've seen. You guys are throwing off a ton of cash. You're growing really quickly. You're making a ton of money. P&G wants this business more than you want to sell it. You want to sell it because this is going to change your life and the way that you live and like your family's life. And so you want to sell it with every fiber of your being. P&G wants to buy it with even more than that. Every fiber of your being is only worth $100 million. To them, $100 million is nothing. They have more fibers and so they care more. And so you should sell. You should call up the guy 
who is the head of deodorants at P&G and say, look, the business is on fire. I can't do 100 anymore. And I didn't have the balls to do it. I was like, I like my father's like, this man is fucking crazy. My father was like, Paul Ferris is fucking crazy. And my brother was like, Paul Ferris has the biggest balls I've ever seen in my entire life. Like those things are not testicles. They're cannonballs that he's got between his legs. And uh, I was just like, what the fuck? I was like, what is going on here? Six months ago, you said a hundred. I shockingly delivered that hundred. And now we're talking about raising the price. And, you know, I don't really regret anything about the sale because, you know, I'm pretty happy with my life these days. But I I think about that a lot. And every time I see Paul, I'm like, Paul, you got this right on the head. You were absolutely right. This business was on fire. I didn't realize it. You know, I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And so I, I like I was ready to sign the documents. But if I were doing it again, or like, you know, if I was doing it today with all the knowledge and resources I have now, I would have been like, no, it needs 150 now. Fuck it. Uh, but like Paul, you know, I'd never, I couldn't believe that he was saying this kind of stuff. And I told my parents, I told my mom this story and she was looking at me like, what kind of shitty son did I raise that he did not take this <laughs> advice and, you know, maximize value. Uh, you know, what's funny so though, like, is in the moment, if he you told your mom, she'd probably be like, are you crazy? Sign yeah, the paper yeah. right now. Yeah. Like, that's sign right. the yeah, paper. Yeah. Don't do yeah, anything yeah. stupid. Don't fuck this up. Yeah, that's what my father said. And I think my father is still like, that was the right move. You're right. My mom would have been like, that was the right move at the time. And today she's like, Paul Ferris was right. He's my son, not you, you piece of shit. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I was having that story with them just after Thanksgiving. So I wanted to mention that on the pod. That's awesome. I think we should wrap there. Awesome. Well, that's it for uh, episode nine. Uh, Looking forward to episode 10. Thanks for listening. And if you guys have any things that you guys want uh, us to chat about, please DM or uh, message us on Twitter. Uh, Nick and I will be all over it. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, guys. guys.